Have you ever wanted to know more about the judge set to preside over your case? Welcome to Beyond the Bench, where San Diego mediators Joanne Rezzo and Jim Picorni get up close and personal with judges from state court as well as federal court. Here are Joanne and Jim. Joanne, we are with Honorable Kenneth Medell. On a lovely Friday afternoon. Can you believe that? We got Judge Kenneth Medell here to talk with us. In his private chambers. Judge Medell, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. How long have you been a judge now? Since 2010, uh, since the uh, great governor of the state of California, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes. Very close friend of mine actually appointed me to be a judge in 2010. 13 years. Truth is, uh, I've never met him, uh, but he did send me a Christmas card that he drew himself, a little cartoon that he drew himself. Allegedly. Wow, that's, no, I've this got, is I got to see oh, this. Allegedly drew himself, but maybe I'll bring it next time so. Wow. Well, that, did you save it? I think I have it somewhere. Okay. It's not in front of us where we in can the, talk about it. In the chaos that is my home, yes. Yeah, exactly. So before that, you, I mean, that's how you and I met, practicing law, a long, long time ago. When did you start practicing? 1979, uh, November, I think. Doesn't Isn't that when the bar results come out? So sometime in November, the bar results came out. Uh, in oh, 70- right around Thanksgiving, I remember yeah. that. Yes. That was like cruel. Seventy nine, and then in the, uh, in the Sacramento Bee. <laughs> no, it was the. Uh, was it on Stone Tablets back oh, then? Oh, okay, the transcript. There was a San Diego Daily Transcript. You could call. The only way you could find out whether you passed or not was to call up the number at the San Diego Daily Transcript. They would say, "May I have your name, please?" And then you would give them your name, and then they would look down the list. And, and I have to tell you that, uh, oh gosh, I can't tell the story because I would be, well, in fact, I won't tell the story. But I was with someone who did not pass. Oh. And um, when they said, give me your name again, we knew it was not good for him. <laughs> so, yeah, so spell that name, please. So for me, uh, he then handed the phone over to me after he got the bad news. This is in my little tiny apartment over in uh uh, what's it called? Uh, Dog Badge? It's the community, I can't even University Heights is what it's called. Right. Uh, but he handed the phone to me, and instead of them saying, can you spell your name again? They said, is that M-E-D-E-L? They spelled it for me, so I knew I was in. And as I'm screaming in exultation, I glanced over on my right eye, I saw my friend pretty much crushed, and oh. kind of curbed my own uh, exultation, you know. So. <sighs> that was 1979. Can you imagine that? And we are in 20. I'm 106 years old. We're in 20. In Mar- next March. I won't have to tell you how old I was in 1979. Yeah. No, yeah, you were not even probably on the earth at the time. We don't want to go there. I was here. We, we recall some stories from you from Downey, California. Yes. When you were a kid. Downey High School. Not the Downey Ducks. It was a Downey. Uh, it's, uh, in fact, you've just insulted me by claiming or suggesting or intimating that I went to Downey High School. They were our arch rivals. Well, you went I to high school in Downey, California. In Downey, and I was a Warren Bear. Of course. There we go. A Warren Bear. Very no proud ducks. Of me. Very proud to be. A football player, too. All I did in three years, we had a three-year school, was to play football, hang out with my football friends. Any of the young ladies who were interested in the football players were part of our family. Of course. Uh, and that's all that I did. And unfortunately, um, my parents were... Uh, struggling with some issues and um, it was the time that I stopped studying completely and stopped doing anything having to do with schoolwork after having been a really good student up to that point. 
So you were good through ninth grade, and then 10th grade, you just dropped everything? Yeah, uh, good good, get, good in getting grades, but also testing, you know, when they did the aptitude test yeah. really, really well. So my parents, who had uh, two older daughters, my two sisters, um, felt, this is the last kid we need to supervise. He'll be fine. And I really had, a, a, I wouldn't say struggles because I didn't really care. I just wanted to play football. But when it was all done, uh, done and I graduated uh, my grade point average was not one that would get me anywhere at all <laughs> so instead of going to the big university I went to UCLA and you say UCLA that is a, that big, is a big university mm, I and think I it's also a community college University of Cerritos left on Alondra <laughs> That's where it was. That is UCLA. Which yes, is which right. is one of California's best kept secrets. It's a community college, right? Uh, I would say to anyone listening, if you're you know, you're probably a lawyer if you're listening to this, but if you want to pass this along to young people, that the community college system is the best kept secret for the advancement of your education and your intellect and your uh and your savings wor- account worldliness and your savings account if you take advantage of it. Absolutely. So, important thing that happened during that two-year period of time was that I had an introduction to philosophy class and at a time when all my friends were taking a lot of drugs, be honest with you, drinking mm-hmm. a lot of alcohol because my friends were relatively rough and tumble coming out of football. They were purposely going to bars to purposely get into fights. They were doing just about all the wrong things and this professor, Professor Bloomfield, literally introduced me to the lives and the thoughts of the great philosophers people who lived 2,000 years ago. And I had an epiphany at that point going, man, wouldn't it be better to develop my mind like these great philosophers than it would be to be out drinking and getting into fights with my friends? There aren't a lot of young college students that think that way. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah was this an aha moment? I mean, what, what? It was an aha moment, and it changed my life. I, I, I hate to fast forward, but I will. No, go. But when I was old and gray, I started... Uh, feeling guilty for never having thanked Professor Bloomfield for this. I was never a guy that warmed up to my teachers. And so he wouldn't have known me from Adam. But here's what happened. I pick up the telephone. I dial 911 or whatever information is. I get this 411, right? 411. Um, city and state, please. Uh, that'd be Norwalk, California. All right. And the number or the uh, person, that would be um, Cerritos College. Thank you. Here's the number. Then, um, this is years after you took the class. Years. I was a lawyer and uh, late in my career. Um, Cerritos College. Can I help you? Yes. This is a very weird request, but um, I had a teacher that changed my life, and I never thanked him. Is can I have the name of the teacher, please? It was Professor Edward Bloomfield. Edward, uh, Professor Bluefield retired last year, but he still lives in the area. Thank you for calling. Click. 411. Professor Edward, what what city? Norwalk. Hi, this is Ed Bloomfield. Can I help you? And at that point, I, out of the blue, told him, I had you in 19, what, 73 or so. You taught me philosophy. You changed my life because at the moment that I decided to develop my brain by reading everything I could possibly read. At that same moment, I decided to become a lawyer. And it's all because of your class, and I just wanted to thank you for that. Ironically, 
his daughter was had become a professor and was coming to San Diego the following week for a conference, and he was assigned to be the babysitter for their children. And I had the chance to take him to the old Horton Plaza where they had those restaurants up there. Right, and I took right. him out to dinner and what we, a great we talked, story. Talked about was it, it was, fun? Totally. I'll totally. bet he loved it. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he. Did. I mean, how often do you get a, a thanks like that? Right. And a free dinner. And I, rem- I need to uh, call him and let him know that uh, you know the governor, my good friend Schwarzenegger, made me a judge too. That might add to his uh, his pleasure. Maybe we'll send him this podcast. There you go. Yeah, that'd be great. Let him know that he's a big shot now. Right. There we go on the internet. Wow. Right. So, one of the questions that have been on our mind is. What is one of the questions on our mind? Right? Well, I honestly, I want to know, I want to know some of his travel stories because he, his office, for those of you who can't see the inside of his chambers, is full of these amazing photographs that I know that Judge Medell took himself of different places in Africa. So tell us a little bit about your travels. So um, one of my law school friends married a lady that ended up having a long career at the zoo. And uh, I got an email from her and another one of my friends from law school saying they're putting together a trip to Africa. And they said, Do you, who wants to go? I had no interest, not one iota of interest, but I am, if you don't know me, rather impulsive. And I said, it would be fun to hang out with my friends. We're in. Um, the uh, Probably about a month later, I, my wife comes to me and says, I got an email. We owe $5,000 as a deposit on this trip. Don't. As a deposit? As a deposit on this trip. Yipes. I said, yipes. I said, really? And she goes, yes. So I cut her the check. About three days later, it just struck me as kind of crazy. And I, I said, how much is the total trip going to cost? And I, 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 just to make the story good, she said 25000 bucks. Whoa. I said, you got to be kidding. So we, uh, without impugning my own character as a judge, we uh, considered, talked about every conceivable way of getting out of going on that trip. <laughs> Some ethical and appropriate, maybe some not such, not so much, but uh, ended up we went on the trip and it was uh, probably the, one of the greatest trips I've ever been on. I recommend that everyone do that. Instead of grousing about the cost of it, I ended up saying I need to do this one more time. My thinking was 10 to 20 years down the line. And two or three years later, the American Board of Trial Advocates offered another trip to Africa that they would organize. Knowing the quality of that organization and the quality of the people in it, I knew it would be a first-class operation, so we went a second time. First one was from South to South Africa and Botswana. Second one was to Tanzania and Rwanda to chase after the gorillas. Wow. And the last one, we had another one, the original guide that was sent to us by the travel agency on the first trip recently wrote us, my wife and I, a letter saying, out of all the people... We've selected you and a couple other couples to do a special trip to Kenya and Uganda. We've selected you. Well, see, it was. He actually selected his favorite people Wow! to go on a special trip. And so um, that was kind of a... So have you done the third trip we yet? We did the third trip. And there are wow. many more photos, I feel, the best photos I've done that were waiting to be framed. Very cool. (laughs) And how'd you get into photography? Because these pictures are, these photographs are stunning. They're pretty professional. I'm I'm hoping that my my friend Mike Estrada, who was my cross-the-street neighbor starting in second grade, is listening. 
because whatever Mike did, I had to do. Oh, okay. And one thing so Mike, was... one thing Mike did was start taking guitar lessons in about fourth grade, which caused me to make strongly urge my parents to allow me to buy a guitar, take <laughs> take guitar lessons in sixth grade, and then our guitar our t- our guitar teacher put us into a band. So from about sixth grade all the way through my first year at, at UCLA, University of Cerritos, Left on Laundry, we were in a band that played music. So Mike is responsible for that. Okay, wait, did we know this? No, we didn't. Well, no, I knew he played guitar. Yeah. But you know what? We need to get all these judges that have these musical inclinations together, together. to ha- start a band together. We could actually do a podcast. You and songs. Judge Demlin? Well, Judge Demlin's got a, a band, yeah, and John yeah. Thompson. Yeah. And a band, I mean. Yeah. So Mike also is the one who uh, bought a what's called a Yashica D camera. It's a twin lens, twin lens reflex, which means you look down into it through the open opening, and there are two two lenses on the face of it, and things are upside down and backwards and that sort of thing. Like the old brownies. Oh, the old brownies, <laughs> and we he started got me interested in using the dark room and all that sort of stuff. So that you were was, developing your own film and all that. That was in tenth uh, grade. Yeah, so we had a at my school, Warren High School Bears, we had a great uh, photography lab, and so I learned how to do that then. So that was kind of the genesis of it, mm-hmm. just like the guitar. Since high school, it's waxed and waned, so it hasn't been. I would be brilliant both in photography and on the guitar if I had just consistently progressed. But those sorts of things, as you get other interests, they kind of wax and wane in terms of your... Well, maybe in the retirement phase. Very good. Get back into photography and guitar. I want to know when you had time to play guitar and go in the darkroom when you were busy playing football and fighting. Um, Well, the the photography was a class you could take, so I took it as part of the curriculum. Okay, and you liked it? I loved it. It was fun. You know. Well, if the, the, the listeners are not here, obviously, we're in your chambers in a conference yes. room, and we're surrounded by what appear to be, yeah. in addition to some old movie posters, very professional photographs that you took yourself. Right. With, with what? With a Yashica also, or what? So, uh, no. <laughs> I'm just picturing the effort it would take to look down in that camera and follow lions and tigers and all that sort of stuff. But no, I believe the first uh, cameras that I used for the first two trips were Canons, high-end Canons, uh, 5D Mark III and Mark IV, which doesn't mean much, but they're really nice Canon cameras, professional ones. And then uh, for the last trip I used, I bought a what they call a mirrorless camera, which is much lighter because there are no mirrors inside of it. Cameras apparently are built with mirrors inside of them, which makes them heavy. Okay. But they figured out a way to have no mirrors, and that's the new, new latest craze is mirrorless cameras. They're much smaller, much lighter, but they're fantastic. So I did a, a Sony camera for that, for the last trip. Now, are you still using film or are you doing digital? No, I'm doing digital, but okay. I still have film cameras. I have three film cameras. I have two. Oh, I busted yeah. a couple out for my son and a friend of his, yeah. and we I, I took them out. They were doing black and white photography. It was a blast. Apparently, it's a rage. But you right? can't get it developed. Yes, right. There's nowhere to get it developed anymore. Right. So what do you do? You have to send it in. Yeah. Not locally, but you can send it in. But yeah. I would say, I believe, not to make a plug, but one of, I'll just say it this way to be neutral. One of our local, very reputable photo, photo, photo shops. I know the one photo, you're talking about. Yeah. They, you can send your film to them and they'll take care of it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
don't want to be a judge doing a plug for No, of course not. <laughs> a couple, there are a couple of good ones in town, yeah. and I when, know exactly the one when, that you're talking about. Too yes. Many. When yes. I was a kid growing up in Point Loma, a long, long time ago, mm-hmm. there was a, a camera shop on Newport, near the intersection of Newport and Cable, mm-hmm. across the street from Myers and Stewart mo, uh, Mobile Gas Station. Mm-hmm. That's where my dad and I would take the film. Mm-hmm. You know, crossing your fingers, and you come back five days later, and you find out which you're paying for. That either was the way. fun part too. I mean, you the get your waiting? pictures back, and it's like, wow, look at that! That's yes. so cool. Well, and then nice. Polaroid came out. Yeah. Oh my God! Sixty seconds later, you've had to put this thing on it, wipe right. it around. But six, all of a sudden, there's a picture. Yes. You know, and now we have these things in our pockets where the pictures instant, and the cameras, the quality's pretty good. Not like you've got, but right. not bad. Right. So, Joanne, we've got other questions. Remember, he's a judge. We need to talk about judge-type stuff because lawyers are going to be listening to this. How boring. No, no, no. Well, I want to know a little bit about what advice you would give to young lawyers coming up. You see a lot of really good lawyers come through your courtroom, and I'm sure you probably see some that aren't that great. But what are some tips that you would give the the youngsters? Or or any lawyers, just to be a better lawyer, not even be a young lawyer. Well, uh, I'll give you the three uh, principles that I give to lawyers when I swear them in, and but I'll give them to you shorthand because they take a long time uh, to, to talk about. Number one is, I, I think, uh, and this is from my own experience, when I passed the bar, which to me was a huge surprise, I, I misappropriated my oh, time. Oh, please. I'm, I'm being serious about this because it wasn't that I didn't feel I did well on it, it's that it was predicated a lot on essays. You, you had three essays out of four mm-hmm. that were presented to you to do in in an hour in three hours or something like that. Right. And I just remember getting to the last one and starting it and looking at my watch and going, "I have like ten minutes to do this last this last one." And I'm going, "Oh my god!" This is called good allocation of time. That's so I didn't think I passed the bar, so it was a it was a big surprise. So anyway, when I passed the bar, I said, "I'm young, I'm thin, I'm handsome, I'm smart." When are people going to start throwing me the money now? <laughs> and I didn't realize the enormous amount of work that's required to succeed in your field of endeavor, but also to, to gain over time an excellent reputation in the community, to not just be some schlub practicing law, but to actually be recognized by your peers going, hey, that guy's pretty good, you know, that sort of thing. My focus was trials because... Um, some of the other stuff didn't excite me too much. Mm-hmm. You can already tell by you, what we've said already that I'm theatrically the bound. The drama from, part. And I did drama at UC Irvine, too. It's wow. another component. So, um, Did we know that? No, we got to get UC those tapes. Irvine, yeah. yeah. So the bottom line is that when I started studying old English property cases, I about went crazy. <laughs> I said, I'm not sure I'm cut out for this law school business. It doesn't tickle my sense of theatricality. (laughs) And I almost quit like two or three times. But I stuck with it. And in my second year, almost, I never thought of this before, but almost like the epiphany I had with uh, uh, Professor Bloomfield, when I got into the trial practice course, I went, aha, I found something I can do and still be interested and be a good lawyer. Mm -hmm. So um, to, to do that, back to the first point, which is working hard, you had to do more than what was required to you at the DA's office, which was my first job. We were encouraged not to work overtime. Wow. 
but I didn't care about that. I didn't care. I was paying. I needed to do my pr- good performance in front of this jury. Mm-hmm. It was important that I win because I can't stand being embarrassed publicly. So uh, a lot of these things are personality driven. Doesn't seem to bother Jim. <laughs> yes. What can I say? <laughs> no, I mean, there's there's a there's a point to be made that um, you, you might think, well, if someone is insecure, they're not going to succeed. But if someone parlays their insecurity and is driven by insecurity, they'll end up doing a lot of things to make sure that they don't have that uh, that sore spot True. triggered. Absolutely. And, I, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm, a, I'm a basket case of insecurity, but there was just enough insecurity in me to say, I don't want to stand before a jury and look bad, and I don't want a bad result. And that motivated me to work really, really hard on my cases, sometimes all night, even at the DA's office where we're told, don't work overtime because that means we have to give you the thing called comp time where they give you time off for any hour. They, they didn't want you to do that. So bottom line is you, you do need to work hard and more than you ever thought mm-hmm. in order to get a reputation. Second point is to treat people right. And, you know, I'll just give this one line because I could go on and on about this. Yep. It's easy to treat people right who you're working with in your firm or colleagues on the same side of the table in a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. But as Jim could tell you, uh, we run into some very tough, nasty, angry, offensive characters on the other side of our cases sometimes. And to maintain your composure, your professional uh, attitude, your collegiality, your cooperation, your openness with someone who is just the devil on the other side is a real challenge, but it's something that has to be done. And then the third thing is, I always say, is called honor the moral choice. There are times when we're given an opportunity on a case that would result in victory if we chose that path. Quick victory or something easier than our normal workup of a case, but it gives us pangs of anxiety in our stomach. Our stomach is rumbling because we're thinking, I wonder if this is the right moral thing to do. Might not be the right thing. thing. And I just tell people, if you're the person who has to make that decision on your own, always choose the path that comports with your sense of morality and ethics and reject the one that makes you grumble and, you know, makes you a little uncomfortable. Because if it makes you uncomfortable, the opposing lawyer, when they find out, is really going to hit, it's going to, the ass is going to hit the fan. Yep. And if it gets before the courts and the judge has that reaction, then the judge is running up and down the hallway talking to other judges saying, I can't believe what this lawyer did. Yeah. And all the work that you did, remember? Mm-hmm. Principle one, work hard. Principle two, treat people right. Now you have this great reputation. Out the window. One, out the window with one bad moral out choice. Out the window. And yep. just to go, just a final thing on that is that when you have that crossroads to face, then talk to some of the older guys. Or, uh, and a guys means both men and women who've gone through that and get your best advice first from them as to where you where they think you need to go. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. Yeah. You know, my first job out of law school was uh, working across the street for Judge Rhodes, John Rhodes. Mm-hmm. And he taught me a lot of wonderful things. But one of the things he said was, you know, guard your reputation. Because if you ever do anything to damage your reputation, you never recover that. Which that, is true. Unfortunately, what people remember is your yeah your peccadillos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tell us a little bit. You switching gears a little bit. You <clears throat> coached for a long time. Wow. Tell yeah. us a little bit about your coaching activities. I love that. The uh, my neighbors came to me and said, "We see that you jump into the car all the time in baseball 
uh, garb and play maybe three or four times a week. We have a little league in Mid-City, which is at 35th and Adams, Normal Heights area. That is not just a, we don't just have a Bad News Bears team. The whole league is a Bad News Bears <laughs> league. We don't even have a field. It's just part of the elementary school. It's just beat up old field, part of the elementary school. So the rules are loose. It's casual. And we think you could help us with the little league. And so that I did. And I was kind of surprised because I thought I was going to be, uh, you know, preparing the field or in the snack shack or something. But the first meeting we had at St. Didicus Catholic School in their auditorium, uh, they, my friend volunteered me as a 9 and 10 years Ten-year-old team manager, and he was going to be my assistant coach to um, help me understand the rules and that sort of thing. But I would manage; I would make the baseball decisions on the team. What was the name of the team? It was the Padres at the time, not too inventive, but it was the Padres at the time. So, um, our there's many, many, many stories that come to mind when I tell you, but I'll just try to focus here. The Padres won the nine and ten-year-old division of our little league. There are wow. only four teams. On your watch. On my watch, my, my management. And the um, we were going to the Tournament of Champions, which I didn't even know existed. But that is when your best team for the 9 and 10 plays all the other people, kind of like in your county. They're called districts, and they're the surrounding communities. And um, I was out practicing when a lady came up to me named Yvette, and said, are you the 9 and 10-year-old coach for the TOC? And I said, yeah. She goes, well, I saw you out there. You're jumping around. You're, you're yelling and screaming, and you're all excited. Every year we're in this TOC, we get creamed. Usually the games end by calling it the, the mercy temp- rule. The oh, mercy rule. No. Oh, no. gosh. So oh. you might want to refocus all your energy on thinking of a way to make it palatable for the kids so they're not too traumatized when this happens. Oh, no. What did I tell you I did in high school? I was, I was indoctrinated, I call it a cult, by the cult leader, Vince Lombardi, and my football coach. Yeah. You just don't give up and you try. So to me, that was telling me the kids that I had just spent a season with didn't have the same value as the kids in the, uh, the other communities, mm-hmm. that they couldn't do it, that they were literally almost had disabilities of some kind because of where they lived and because of everyone on my team pretty much was not of any means. Sure. And so um, at that point, I made that same kind of commitment I did to uh, not leave that little league until we had a winner. I, I, I will show you the picture when we're done of my team when they're 15 and 16 years old, all the same kids, mm-hmm. the third best team in the state of California for the senior league of little league. Wow. And so when that happened, we... Pretty much accomplished what we did. It took eight years. Good years. for you, though. Good but for sticking with did. it. So that's 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 my little league story. Now, now when Yvette approached yeah. you, Yvette and- works at um, um, a pizza place on El Cajon Boulevard. Now, the other day, I went to pick up pizza with my wife, and uh, couldn't believe it, but there she was. She's wow. still there. Yeah. Uh-huh. And when she approached you with this revelation, <laughs> gee, you might want to prepare yourself for being yeah. in the toilet. What was her attitude like? Was it mean and nasty, not, condescending? Not whatsoever. It was very matter of fact, and you know, this is what happens. Watch out for there. I just want to warn you about yeah. that. You know, your expectations may be too grandiose, and you might want to 
tone those down a little bit. Let's talk about how that applies to lawyers and clients. I've always been a proponent that if you raise your client's expectations unrealistically, it's going to be an unhappy ending, whether it's in trial or settlement. You were a lawyer for a long time. You did medical malpractice defense, as I recall. Yes. Does that apply to what you did too? Well, I think there are two things you're asking me about. First is what you talked talked to about your clients. And I was always extremely humble about what I believe might happen at trial with people. And as honest as I could be, and I always cheated toward the more pessimistic side just in case that happened. Right. And you're dealing <laughs> with doctors too. Dealing with right? doctors, you know. But um, in my mind, when you're faced with a challenge, your duty is to develop a pathway to victory, develop a plan that would get you there. And even if you're a brand new lawyer, you need to, if you don't have it already, manufacture as much confidence as you can before that judge or that jury. Don't give in or even say, this is my first trial. Try to be as confident as you can and stick with that plan 100%. And you'd be surprised that you're going to win most of the time if you stick to your plan, if you have a plan toward victory. The other side won't know what your plan is. Hmm. That's my belief. I, I was privileged, though, to be in the DA's office where your chance of victory was already pretty high. Right. And in medical malpractice cases, which is the same thing, you know, because of the, there's 10 reasons why that's true, where uh, the likelihood is you're going to win, you know, statistically. But at the same time, I always believed that um, if you uh, you got to figure out a way. And if you figure out a way, figure out that path, it's very likely to happen. How do you figure out the way? Well, I mean, it's just a matter of you looking at your case in depth. Um, I'll give you I'll give you a story now from the DA's office. Okay. I was in the first one of the I was I was the first substitute in the first gang prosecution unit. Uh, I, I think it, Ed Miller was very inventive, so I think it may have been the first one in the country, in San Diego. Maybe L.A. was first, I'm not sure, but we were first or second. It was four lawyers, and the leader of that is was Keith Burt. I remember Keith. Keith Burt was a great, a great guy, um, and he really believed in what we were doing, and that was recognizing that most deputy DAs um, – were completely uh, alienated from gang cases because the witnesses weren't going to cooperate. Your victim has a worse criminal record than your the than perpetrator. Your, yeah, and the perpetrator in the case, no one's going to cooperate with you, and you're never going to prove the case. So what was happening was people would come for trial calls. Deputy DAs, they had two cases. One was a gang murder, and the other was an old lady from La Jolla who got robbed, and there were ten people who saw it. And it would sound like this. People versus Sanchez. Your Honor, we moved to dismiss that case. And then the other case got tried. So they were just dismissing these cases while the gang problem was growing and growing and growing and wow. the violence was increasing and increasing and increasing. So the whole point of the gang unit was to address exactly what you asked me. How are we going to win these cases? And have the stick to to per persevere and, and win the case under the most dire circumstances. So that leads, that was just the introduction to the story. Wow. <laughs> Sounds like a good story. So what'd you do? I got a case, and I'll name the names. Uh, the victim was Andy Ochoa, and he belonged to a certain gang. I don't remember. I think a Logan Heights gang. Was at Chicano Park. 
And all I heard from witnesses is that you saw Andy Ochoa running out of the bathroom and a guy behind him like a cartoon with a big knife and just stabbing him in the back as he's running away wow. from him. Ouch. The guy's name was uh, Guillermo Esquivel. We go to trial, jury trial. I call, I had established a great relationship, which was part of our protocol mm-hmm. with, with, with uh, the, victim. the victim. And we were like friends. And he gets up on the witness stand, and we've selected a jury. And I say, would you please state your full name? He says, my name is Andy Ochoa. All right, Mr. Ochoa, I want to direct you to the night of such and such. And he says, excuse me, Mr. Medell, excuse me. I, I'm not going to be able to do this. I can't do this. This is on the witness on stand the witness in front stand, of the jury. Front of the jury. Ouch. <laughs> the, the judge was, uh, I think it was Judge Greer. I'm, I'm almost positive. Mickey Greer. Mickey Greer. Wow. He says, I can't do this. So we had a, went back into chambers. He refused to testify. The judge threatened him. He said, sir, I'm going to, if you don't testify and testify to the truth, I'm going to put you in custody. And he goes, well, next Friday I have to report for five years of being in the California Youth Authority. So if you want to do that, that's fine. It's not going to affect me whatsoever. Something like that. Oh, no. You know? So um, I said, I don't know what to do. And, Je- and Guru says, you better go talk to your supervisor. So that usually meant you were going to go make a pitch to dismiss the case. I went over to Keith Burt. It, uh, we used to be on the fourth floor of the old courthouse. Right. And I go, Keith, here's what happened. I told him what happened. He grabbed me by the shoulders, turned me around and faced me the other way and gave me a gentle push and says, go win this case. Wow. No pressure and I'm there. Like, but, but go win the case. <laughs> but, but go win the case. The, I ended up convincing the court to use the finding that the Mr. Ochoa was unavailable, legally unavailable. Mm-hmm. And we were able to use the preliminary exam transcript in lieu of his live testimony. Guess what? Uh, the the attorney was named Tetley. I don't know if you remember that guy, James. I think his name was James Tetley. Don't remember. He was an older guy, and he didn't call any witnesses, and he didn't call Mr. Esquivel up to deny what had happened. And mm. I got a, I got a, a guilty verdict. Now, how wow. did how did you fashion this into a, a, an unavailability? Basically, he uh, was on the witness stand. He was going into custody, and he refused to testify. And the judge just found, just I don't remember the details, but the judge found him unavailable. <clears throat> wow. Yeah. So that's what that was. Well, congratulations. That's amazing. Well, I mean, that's, it happened. It, yeah. You know, uh, I, I was on the scale of let's get this case dismissed until he turned me around, and pushed me. <laughs> so the moral but that is that was yet another you know epiphany moment. Yeah. That if, that if you if if you think about your case, you think about it hard enough, you can find a way. Most of the time, I'm not saying to anyone that yeah, I can guarantee victory every time, but that just seems to be what happened with you know in terms of most of my cases. Because we don't all win you all our win. cases. And I didn't win all my cases. I didn't either. And civil, so. It happens. Yeah. And do you remember Alan Weissmantle from Higgs Fletcher? Absolutely. And he famously said on a number of occasions, mm-hmm. if you're not losing cases, you're not trying cases. It just happens. It's true. You know, you win cases that you think you're going to lose, you lose cases you think you're going to win. But I'm going to tell you something now that I, another thing that, uh, you know, I, I like to, uh, Act like everything I say is important. So this is another thing. Uh, And I'm listening. (laughs) When I'm in a nursing home and you come and visit me, Jim, and you say to me, I'm sitting in my wheelchair there, and you say to me, hey, Ken, what case do you remember the most? What I described to you would be, well, I tried a lot of cases. 
But the only one that comes to mind, and I'm going to tell you all about the civil case where I got a very minor $25,000 verdict against my client. Other co-defendants had $400,000 verdicts against them, so people were patting me on the back. Right. My client didn't do anything wrong, though. Was it a doctor, a hospital? It was a doctor. Okay. And, and I believe that I made certain mistakes in that, to, that led to that result, that he should have never been found liable whatsoever. And that was another epiphany time where I just said, I cannot let this happen again because justice was not served. And at that point, I kind of revamped, I analyzed that case closely and revamped the way I did discovery. It was a case where co-defendants had motivation to get me. Mm. So we're doing closing arguments. (laughs) I'm watching the plaintiff's lawyer try to get me and then the three other co-defendants in their closing arguments that try to, you know, get me too. And I didn't realize that. So that was just a practical lesson I learned. Maybe that's not a case you want to try. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then other mistakes I made in terms of not not uh, trusting pe- people, you know, telling me, the host- you know, basically saying, don't take this person's deposition because we're just going to help the plaintiff's lawyer. And then that person came to testify and just about killed my case. Mm-hmm. You know, so... It's to make sure I had a duty to my client that under all circumstances to make sure that your client is protected. No matter if you think people are friends to you or enemies to you, you got to take care of the case and cover all bases pretty much. So the long, the short point to that is you learn the most when you lose. Losing is important. Yeah. Now, you talked about having this uh, on, on your three-point plan, the moral compass, I'll call it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Applying that to criminal law, as some lawyers might not know that don't do criminal law, your job as a prosecutor was not to convict but was to do justice. Exactly. And so that that can put you in a quandary as well, right? I mean, you, you do— you, you work up your case and you realize, wait a second, I, I don't think— even though there was an issuing deputy— that said, we probably can convict. And there's a preliminary hearing because that's probably, it looks like they're guilty and it's going to go to trial. Something else comes up and you think, you know what? I don't, I don't think this is the right thing to do. Do you go to your boss then and you tell him why? you get got your moral compass. It's not to convict, it's to do justice. What do you do? Yes, I, I think it's every lawyer, I think it's every lawyer's obligation if they feel that the evidence doesn't support um, a guilty finding, which is a mild way of saying it, or if they think the person is not guilty, which is the strong way of saying it, and it has a moral obligation to let their supervisor know. And if you're still pushed to do something on the case, to um, ask that someone else take care of that case. You ever see that happen? <laughs> um, I have not seen that happen, but I did have one case um, that... Um, was disturbing to me. It was a, um, and I don't want to disparage anyone or anything because part of this is speculation, but uh, an African-American gentleman, well, it was a gentleman driving a car, went over the limit line and killed some, killed these, uh, a man and a woman who were in their 70s that were, had just retired and they were doing a cross-country trip on their motorcycle. Oh, wow. And the, the gentleman driving the uh, car, the defendant, crossed the line. And so it was a vehicular manslaughter case. 
Um, I looked at the file that was given to me, and in the file it was stated that here are the two deputies that, that would be good choices to try this case. One was Elliot Moses, and one was me. And I was that was weird in and of itself. I didn't really know what that meant, but it was in the progress notes for right. things written mm-hmm. right in there. And so um, I talked to my supervisor, and he said, "Look, you don't need to worry about what the result is in this, like you would a regular case. It just needs to be tried." Hmm. And I said, "Okay." And then I looked, and when I went to court, I saw that the um, defendant was African American guy. So I made it clear to Judge Leftig, who was my judge down there in South Bay, do you have an opening statement? Nope. And put on the witnesses to say that. Do you have a closing argument? Nope. And then let the other side uh, argue the case. Any rebuttal thing you want to do you didn't do? Let me guess. Nope. <laughs> and, um, it's a true story. This is a true story. <clears throat> and um, the... Uh, the person was found not guilty, which was the appropriate outcome. And the one that I was uh, trying to signal to the court that I thought was appropriate by not doing an opening statement, not doing a closing <laughs> argument, hardly any cross-examination, that sort of thing. And um, when I walked back to my office with the victims, so this is the family of the two older people who passed right. away. They were, there was about three of them, and they were shoulder me. And as we were walking back to the DA's office, we were joking and laughing and that sort of stuff. And I came to the window and my supervisor saw this and he saw us all laughing and all that. And he goes, he thought you'd won. He goes, you you didn't win that case, did you? He was like in shock. And I go, no, everything's cool. Everything's cool. But it was just a weird thing that, um, uh, oh, and, and here's what the, here's what the, here's what the punchline is, which I should have told you before. The old man had a heart the the defendant had a heart attack. He was a bus driver by trade. He was older, so he knew how to be careful and all that stuff. He was older and, and he'd had a heart attack. And that was confirmed right after when he went to the hospital and said, You had a heart attack. you had a massive heart attack. And that's why you slumped over and crossed. That's not guilty. That's not guilty. That's there's no guilt there. No. So to have to try a case under those circumstances, being mm-hmm. one of the two honorees mm-hmm. to try a case like that. I said, well, if you guys are going to make me try the case, I'm going to make sure we get the just outcome. And I made sure we got a just outcome. Good for you. So that's the way I handled it. And the one time that that was ever an issue. Turning back the hands of time. Yeah. uh, You remember when voir dire could last the whole day? Oh, yeah. And even into two days, we could ask about what kind of bumper stickers you have in your car. Where do you go to church? You know, how how do you vote? Obviously, that's changed in a huge amount Mm -hmm. in the last few decades. How do you handle voir dire in your civil cases? Um, I think I'm one of the few judges who, um, almost similar to the, uh, federal model, I do most of it myself and, uh, have fun with it. Um, a lot of the principles that need to be covered in voir dire that are uh, routinely covered by lawyers are not done very proficiently or with very much sensitivity to the jurors, uh, when the lawyers do it. That's your experience? And they miss misstate things in a way that I think is unfair. And so I, I have taken a lot of that 
and I do it myself to so make sure it's done. The lawyers are just trying to precondition I'm, the jury. I'm not saying all lawyers. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm not saying all lawyers, but it happened. In fact, I, I'd say it just happened frequently enough for me to say, you know, I need to take charge of certain of these things. So in my courtroom, just before trial, I asked the lawyers about all the sensitive issues. Um, let's say your client is um, from China and is going to be using an interpreter. That's something that I would cover with the jury. You know, Mr. Mr. Wong wants, you know, he needs to know that you're going to be fair to him. And we're going to have an interpreter here. He's going to be speaking in Chinese. His, his English is limited. I just want to make sure everyone is okay and you're not going to hold it against him. So those sorts of uh, big issues. If the subject matter of the case is a sensitive subject matter of some kind, you know, the whole case is predicated on, you know, child abuse or spousal abuse or use of drugs or whatever, then those are things that I try to cover in my voir dire to make sure that it's done in my, in my sense, since it's sensitive, that it's done properly. And so I can just tell you in, answer, in long answer to your question that um, we usually start at 1030 or 1045 selecting a jury. Um, we're usually done by 330, both. And it is very typical for the lawyers to use five to seven minutes or have no questions at all in oh. my in my, uh, in my courtroom. Now, I would be chomping at the bit if I were one of the lawyers in your government. Surely you allow the lawyers some some questions. Don't call me Shirley. <laughs> Shirley, you're just... <laughs> That's a Jerry Lewis yes, thing, right? doctor. Exactly. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember yes. that. Some of our <laughs> listeners may not be. <laughs> doesn't matter. It's a good joke. It is, yeah. Yeah, all right. So how much do you let the lawyer, lawyers ask? Well, I give them, um, I give them uh, 20 to 30 minutes. Each? Each. That's Depending enough. on the case. If it's a routine case, they're going to get the low end of that. And if it's something a little more complicated, they'll <clears> give them the higher end of that. Has it been your experience after trial that the jurors are willing to talk to the lawyers? Because in the old days, they would talk to us, but... In my experience, towards the end of my career, they would flee. They wouldn't want to chat with us at all. What do you think? Well, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story about that, too. I had a case where Dennis pulled out the wrong tooth. He anesthetized a tooth in the back of the lady's mouth on the upper, tooth number two, I'm guessing. I remember tooth number two was involved. And then he says, you seem anxious. I'm going to give you a little bit of sedative, and I'll be right back. And he came back in, and he pulled the one on the oh. opposite side. So the same place, but on the other side of the mouth, the one that was not a necessary. So make a long story short, I didn't get uh, what I thought the case was worth. Uh, and um, when the jury came back, I went out and talked to them. And the foreperson said, well, one of the reasons that the amount was so high is we had to pay the lawyer. So we gave him a third. We gave him a, we added a third more of what the damages were. Wow. <laughs> and I was able to get the, the judge uh, Ween or Wine, whatever his name was. Yeah, yeah. In, this is in El Centro. Uh -huh. He went on the motion for new trial or remitted her. He looked the lawyer in the eye and says he's got a declaration from the foreperson that said this is what they discussed and this is what they did. So you have a choice. You can either take one. We'll take a one third off of that right. or we're going to retry the case. And he he took the one third, hmm. the one third reduction. Anyway, that's always guided me when talking to a jury. So what I tell the jury at the end is that uh, t what 
judges typically say you have the right to talk to people now that includes the lawyers many of them want to be learn from what you know they want to know not only your reasoning but they want to know about our your perform uh, their performance they sure. want to improve each time so it'd be very helpful for them to talk to you um, but for every proposition there is an equal and forceful counter proposition you don't have to talk to anyone you can go home right now, walk right out the door, go to your car, go home, and when your husband says, um, what happened today? You can say, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> I don't have to talk to you. I don't have to. The judge told me. So I'm not forcing you to do that. And then I just say, if you do choose to talk to the lawyers, pretend like I'm standing next to you so that it stays professional. And secondly, when I was trying cases, I would always hear, I'd be talking to one juror and with my other eye and ear listening to the opposing lawyer re-arguing the case and trying to convince a juror that they were wrong out in the hallway. Hmm. And I always felt, you've, we've had these poor people for five days completely mute. They couldn't say they, a word. Now they get to talk and you're slamming Now they them. get to talk and you're yeah. re-arguing that you couldn't convince them in five days and now you're trying to convince them in the hallway. Those are so lawyers. I said, so I always tell a juror, I'm telling you this, but I got one eye on the lawyers over there. Don't let that happen because this is the time for them to learn from you, not for them to re-argue the case. Right. So that's kind of the way I handle that. I believe, if I could guess, that two or three or four jurors stay and the rest of them bail out Okay. after that instruction. But I, I might be wrong about that. What about you, Joanne? I used to get jurors that stayed around. Like we, we Yeah, yeah. We, we would get, I would say, at least more than half. It's because you're nicer than I am. <laughs> Some would say I'm prettier than you are. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. So, <laughs> some reason they stuck around. Speaking of sticking around, we can't stick around anymore because we're pretty much out of time. Okay, it's just just flown. I cannot thank you enough. This, this was a fun. pleasure. You guys are uh, you guys are great, and I hope this. I wish you the best success on this uh, program. I, I will thank you enough. This and I think this makes our day. Yeah. And uh, we're going to call this a wrap. Thank you. Thank you guys. Take care, Judge. Talk okay. soon. Okay. Be sure to check the next episode of Beyond the Bench for another entertaining and informative judicial conversation, all ad-free. In the meantime, if you would like to learn about alternative dispute resolution, call us at 619-238-7282.